Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In 2005, a wahine with a big personality and ambition to match entered Parliament. She was a teen mum, a Tory and Tainui. And by the time she left 15 years later, Paula Bennett had held some of the highest roles in New Zealand politics. In 1868, the first Māori MPs entered New Zealand's House of Representatives. Today, there have never been more Māori in Parliament. They spanned the political and cultural spectrum and continue to leave an indelible mark on our political landscape. In this series, we'll explore the legacies of former Māori MPs as they speak about their time in politics. I'm Mikey Sherman, political reporter. This is Matangiraya. I'm Paula Bennett, urban Māori woman, mother, grandmother, wife, former Deputy Prime Minister of New Zealand and a proud Kiwi. You spent 15 years in Parliament, you held a number of ministerial portfolios and you were at one time the Deputy Prime Minister. So the first question of course is, is there life outside of this place and what's it like? I'm loving life, yeah. I, I loved my 15 years, and I'm sure we'll talk a bit about that. But there is definitely life outside of Parliament. I am loving sort of being around family and friends, loving the corporate world and what can happen there, and, yeah, my time was right for me to go. Let's talk a bit about your early days, your childhood. If I were to look through your family photo album, what would it tell me? I think a fairly normal Kiwi upbringing, you know, that sort of 70s and 80s. Um, we grew up in Kinloch predominantly. Uh, we moved from Auckland to Kinloch when I was about five years old, and that was a very small village then. 
you know, on the shores of Lake Taupo and we got to run around in bare feet. The village looked out for all the children. There was definitely a sense of freedom um, because you were in such a small place. And I remember hot summers and visiting um, the, the older people and I always loved their stories. Um, you know, I grew up with politics around me. I mean, the Hollyoaks were very dominant um, in Kinloch. And Alan Gibbs, they kind of, between the Hollyoaks and the um, Gibbs, they kind of owned, you know, sort of half of the farmland going into Kinloch. So, yeah, but I don't know, one of a pretty normal upbringing, I suppose, in many respects. And what about school? Did you excel at school? Uh, looking back, and so most of my reports would say, you know, how can I teach Paula when all I can hear is the sound of her voice? <laughs> You know, if only she lived up to her potential, you know, like... Um, well, it certainly served you well in later life. Yeah. So, I um, look, it's been, you know, I, I've always uh, spoken quite openly about the fact that my teenage years were um, very tumultuous and I, I think, struggled with my own sense of identity. I don't blame anybody else, you know, I think that we take responsibility for who we are and what we do as individuals. But there's no doubt about it, particularly when I was about 14, I started rebelling against everything. <laughs> um, you know, whānau, uh, certainly the establishment, you know, rules that I didn't think were right. And, you know, I had a very strong personality and to be fair, I was quite smart and so I could you know I could kind of cause mayhem and I was quite good at it at the end of the day the person I probably hurt the most was myself. Was it that the small town wasn't big enough for you or what was it that led you to rebel? Um, I mean a number of things I mean I did it was quite a um, patriarchal family so my father was you know a, a, a very dominant force in that and I had older brothers and I felt that they were treated um, very differently than what I was and so my way then of responding was to fight back you know I, I always had um, spirit and fight in me and in some respects my parents encouraged it my father in particular he quite liked that I had a bit of spunk Unfortunately for him, it then sort of started going, um, you know, really kind of off the rails a bit. And I don't know, I've, I, it was the 80s. Like when I look back on it, it was a very emotional and um, actually probably quite selfish in many respects. And at 16, you left home and you went flatting with a girlfriend. And then at 17, you fell pregnant. Yeah. How did you break the news to your whanau? I didn't actually for months, months and months and months. Yeah, so I mean, I didn't see a doctor till I was, um, I can't remember exactly, but over seven months pregnant was the first time I ever saw a health specialist. Uh, I was um, quite genuinely concerned that people would make me abort the baby uh, or I'd be talked into that. And I was so young and so naive and um, so silly that, you know, you sort of over-exaggerate things in your own mind. And so I was genuinely, um, genuinely scared that that might happen. So I went away for a few months um, and then my, um, my mother found me and took me back and they loved me and looked after me. As a young woman, you experienced two significant losses. Tell me about that. 
Yeah, I did. I just, my brother died in a really tragic accident, um, diving, and then um, that was in March, and then two months later, two and a half months later, my very best friend uh, died in a motorbike accident. Um, she got hit by a truck and was instantly killed. Uh, both of those deaths hit me very, very hard. And then in that time, I was very close to her family, which I still am. And in that time afterwards, I felt like uh, I was kind of keeping everybody together and, um, you know, sort of working our way through all of that. And again, I was actually living with my grandfather. He'd moved um, to Kinloch by then. And, uh, and I just had that moment you know, about a year, probably less than a year later, but, you know, about six months later, and I just thought, wow, I'm just going to be forever kind of trapped in a cycle of getting pulled back into a bad scene, trying to sort of help everybody else and doing, and I think I need to make a clean break, and so I moved to Auckland. And that, I moved to Auckland in 1992. After moving to Auckland with daughter Anna, Bennett found work as a kitchen hand in a rest home, Two years later, she enrolled for a degree in social work at Massey University as a mature student. And that's where her path to Parliament began, along with some other well-known faces. There was probably a group of about 50 of us that were more mature women, came from a range of backgrounds. I mean, um, Louisa Wall was one, I just um, bumped into Lou in the hallway, and, and a whole variety of other, um, and they were mainly women. And we, uh, you know, we were very political. We were very aware of what was going on and what needed to change. And I spent all, you know, a lot of time with them and, they didn't influence my politics, because I'm sure that they all thought I would probably go into um, Labour or into left, you know, leaning politics. But they certainly did help me have a voice. And I then ended up running for student president, which I became, um, ironically, Louisa was, uh, I think, my sport and rec officer um, when I was the student president. Grant Robertson was at NZUSA, and so we were great mates back then. And Jan from the Green Party, she was the um, woman's officer for NZ. So, you know, isn't it funny how things kind of go round? Very funny. What was it like knowing them then and then seeing all of you enter this place? Yeah, there, were, there was a moment there, because they came in after me, and there was a moment when I was sitting in Parliament and I kind of looked over and there's Grant and I looked over and there's Jan and I just had a wee chuckle to myself and just went, you know, he's, he's the three of us with very different politics and yet in our time, you know, certainly uh, tried to influence change. That would be really, you know, so we, we each of us had that desire. And so there were some uh, amongst you at that time at university who thought you might go to Labour, uh, but you went with National. Mm. What drew you to the National Party? Um, I liked that sense of self-responsibility. Um, my grandmother had been um, a really strong influence in my life. You know, she's Māori, and, and she would say to me, you can't right every wrong and at some level you have to take responsibility for yourself and your actions. So there's things you can control and there's things you can't. You know, and she would often quote Shipley and she would sort of just say, you're a master of your own ship. And you have to be the navigator, you have to be the captain, you have to be the guide, you have to be the cook. And you have a responsibility to actually take that on board. And I think that that sat for me with National. I felt 
they were more ambitious. And ironically, I felt less judged. They didn't see a predetermined path for me. Um, the people that I met in National were, you can do anything and you can be anything. And what will determine that is your own work ethic. Whereas I felt a bit with Labour, almost people felt sorry for me. And not in a bad way, by the way, in a quite genuine way. Mm. But it's like, heck, I don't need sympathy. I need a job. Kia <laughs> You know? Your nan was from the Waikato. Tell me about her. Oh, my goodness. The, the most fascinating woman I think I'll ever meet in my life. You know, a woman almost ahead of her time in many respects, so very modern and an incredible brain. You know, she was just so widely read. She listened to talk back all night. I'm not sure that was a good thing or not. <laughs> um, she always inspired debate. She was proud of being Māori. Uh, but she also used to say to us, and particularly in that sort of 70s and 80s, I spent a lot of time with her, and she would say, um, you know, it's a modern world and you need to fit in a modern world. And that was her belief then. And that to do that, you need to be able to walk in a Pākehā world. Mm. And she was quite strong in that. So she would be, you never forget who you are and where you came from but you equally need to be looking ahead and, um, and, and where it's going. And so incredibly interesting woman. She was very spiritual and very strong, very, very strong and uh, very critical uh, and would hold you to account um, for things that you said. And I could have a year-long debate with her about a particular subject. So she'd send me away to go and read more and come back and formulate your argument better because you're acting like a child. And I'd think, well, I'm 11. (laughs) 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 Yeah, probably. Um, So she was incredible like that. But she, um, and and it's not a criticism, it is a a sign of the times that so many um, Māori New Zealanders have been through, which was at that point um, kind of turn your back on the marae and, you know, and walk this path. And I unfortunately think that in some respects, you know, my whānau, have, we've seen the effects of that, which has had us somewhat disengaged. And and you whakapapa to Tainui. Yeah. Have you been rebuilding that connection for yourself and your whānau? Yeah, my cousin's been a lot more active than I have. It's been an interesting journey and one that's not over for me. You know, there's just no two ways about it. You know, moments where I I kind of wanted to and did, and then I'd pull away again for a couple of years, a lot of it through embarrassment. You know, um, you do feel that sense of um, sort of shame and embarrassment that you can't speak the language that you don't understand. And, oh, gosh, and then I'd practice so hard that I'd overthink it and get on the marae and completely botch it up. You know, 10 minutes early, I did it perfectly in the car and then get up there and the nerves would get so much and then you'd be embarrassed and so you'd pull away, you know, and then it would take a little while for you to get back that confidence to to go again. And then it was almost harder when I became an MP and my profile was there uh, because I think there was, in some respects, an expectation and I didn't know how to live up to it and I probably didn't put the time and energy into doing that. And that featured too, when you were in Parliament, the likes of Willie Jackson questioning your Māori tanga. Yeah. How did, how did that make you feel? Well, I'd probably also just take you back one step and I would say I also genuinely felt 
though, a sense of responsibility to represent other urban Māori that feel disconnected. Mm. And I used to have some amazing conversations with Hariana, and she would say, you almost represent more Māori than I do. You know, there's more Māori in West Auckland that don't know where they're from, that don't understand their connections, and yet feel a bit lost and don't know what to do with that. And so I kind of decided when I came in here that I would wear that proudly. And so I can't be who I'm not. I can change, you know, what happens in, in the future and what I learn. But equally, there's a lot of Māori like me, a lot. And I felt a sense of responsibility when I came here to, to speak for them. After graduating from Massey, Bennett worked as an electorate secretary for senior national MP Murray McCulley. In 2005, she was selected to contest the Waitakere electorate for national, led by Don Brash. While she lost the seat, she entered parliament as a list MP. What were your first impressions of parliament, of this place? Oh, it's hugely intimidating. You know, I didn't go overseas till I was in my 30s. I, um, you know, I'd lived a daily struggle of, you know, trying to pay the rent and surviving kind of thing. And so, you know, there was this day when all of a sudden I was in Parliament and I was a member of Parliament. And I used to walk to work and I used to come up the stairs to the library. And I think that's a magnificent building. And I would purposely walk in that door every morning and take a breath and feel the weight of responsibility that I'd been given and a sense of genuine pride. And then think, now there's work to be done. The year earlier, Don Brash had delivered his audio speech. How did you feel as a wahine Māori about that and about Don Brash? Yeah, I thought that it was um, trying to tap into a sentiment and get cut through. I mean, if you know Don, he meant it. <laughs> I mean, the, the man didn't do something he didn't mean. And so he, he truly believed it and meant it. But it felt, it felt like, it, felt, it still felt like cheap politics, and I don't mean that actually to him, to rudely, because as I say, I think Don is actually quite genuine in, in his beliefs. But it, yeah, it just still, you know, the way it sort of resonated around, it felt like, um, yeah, it felt like it was just kind of the politics, and um, I'm not sure it moved the country forward. Brash's leadership was short-lived. By 2006, the hollow man was gone, replaced by John Key, who led National to victory in 2008. Bennett had a victory of her own, winning her Waitakere seat. And you got to work quickly. Uh, you know, under John Key, he promoted you quickly. Why do you think that was? He must have been quite impressed with you. I definitely worked hard. Uh, I didn't come to Wellington for the social aspects of it. And um, you know, I'll say it, I didn't come here to make friends. I came here to work. Uh, and so I got down to work straight away. And I had no expectations. I didn't really plan on coming into Parliament at that time. I thought it would be another three years. And so it was like, well, I'm here. I might as well make the most of it because who knows how long it will last. So I worked incredibly hard. You know, I did more OIAs. I had screeds of paper. I would scour through them, highlighting what I thought were discrepancies and what the government was had promised and what they were actually doing. I would be standing outside, um, you know, staff, you know, very experienced staff's doors at half past seven the next morning, waiting for them to come in and going, I think I found this. You know, and they go, yeah, no, you haven't. 
you've completely misread it, you know. And so I, if I'd go and I'd go again. And, and so I think John saw that sense of work ethic. And let's be honest, uh, particularly then, I looked and sounded different than most of the National Party. Your quick rise, though, did that draw resentment from some of your colleagues? Um, oh, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm sure there was the odd one, but in general they could see why. So, you know, it's a bit like you don't always love it, but you kind of get why. And then I've only felt support, particularly from my own year group. And there was a big contingent of us, you know, there's about 22 from memory that came in, you know, national MPs that year. And so I only ever, you know, sort of felt support. But I didn't socialise as well as much as a lot of them. And, you know, I'm, I'm really close to quite a few, but I did come here, you know, every hour I didn't work when I was in Wellington meant that when I went home that weekend, I'd have to do that reading. So I took every moment I could when I was here. I was generally in, in Parliament by seven o'clock most mornings. And I had a rule within a couple of years that I had to go home before midnight because I was just actually really tired and I probably was making um, mistakes and it wasn't good for my health. But I would, uh, you know, I would do 60 hours in three days. How did you balance that huge workload? Because you held a number of ministerial portfolios over the years and your family life. Yeah, well, I didn't. You know, um, people can say you do, but the reality is, I mean, your poor family, you know, by the time you do get home, you're tired. So even when you're there, you're, you're, you're a bit disengaged. Um, I got better at it, so I got better at being present in the moment uh, when I was there. I was incredibly fortunate to be loved, uh, and I got a lot of love to give back, so I embraced those moments. But there's no doubt about it, I signed my whole family up to Parliament and to the level of scrutiny that that would be. And did they enjoy it? What was their experience? They never enjoyed it, but they respected what I was doing and I genuinely think were proud of me, and so accepted the kind of consequences of that. One of the ministerial portfolios that you held was social development, and you led a major overhaul of the welfare system. What were you trying to achieve with that? I was trying to achieve people living up to their potential. I was trying to show them that actually there is a different life than, you know, we were dealing with third generation on welfare by that stage, and I think we could be at fourth now. I used to say there's definitely the poverty of not enough money, but man, the poverty of a loss of hope. And people feeling genuinely disengaged from society, and that is from the daily struggle of how to pay your bills, you know? Where will I sleep tomorrow? And I wanted to show that there was a path, and I knew it wasn't going to be easy. And so I could kind of get swallowed in that, I realised really quickly. Or I could be the one that kind of tried to set up the system so that it supported, but it equally encouraged a different path and not one of a lifetime of welfare. How tough was that to lead those changes? No, it was exhilarating. I'm not sure it was tough. Um, I got criticised, still get criticised. Uh, doesn't worry me at all, you know? Not many people actually stand up, put their hand up for the job, and then manage to get in and actually do it. So your critics are often the ones that are sitting on their, you know, on their couches with their Chardonnays, you know, eating their truffles and wondering, you know, how nasty she is to the poor people. And I just never bought into that. I just believed that there is 
a path for everybody in this country and we don't have to drag people down. We just have a role to lift others up and that, that the changes that I could make through welfare, that was the intention. What about the criticism you received for the training incentive allowance and getting rid of that? Was that fair criticism? Probably in hindsight. I mean, I did it for what I believed at that time was the right reasons. Um, it was given to me by officials, you know, and I've got to be honest, I didn't think of me. And knowing what I knew a year later, <laughs> I'd go, well, perhaps I should have, you know, I'm, I'm always walking in my own shoes. And I probably should have thought through the unintended consequences of it, which made predominantly sole mothers believe that they couldn't go and study. And I regret that because they can and they should and, and there is more means for them to do it than there was for when I was doing that in the 90s. But I think the perception of what that, that said to people was definitely unintended. And um, yeah, and I, and I would hate to think people didn't go and study because I'd make that change. Have you spoken about that regret before? Um, yeah, I have. But people kind of hear what they want to hear, and particularly when you're still in the job and you're in the big jobs. And so, um, yeah, I definitely have expressed regret if there were people that genuinely thought that that door had closed for them, because that was never an intention. And Bennett was set to ruffle more feathers. In 2010, she asked iwi leaders gathered at Tūranga Waiwai Marae to address the issue of child abuse amongst Māori. I was genuinely shocked as Minister of then Child, Youth and Family at how many Māori babies there were in care. I just couldn't believe it, right? Like, you know, what are they doing in the state care when they should be with extended whānau, they should be as part of their own? So I, I decided I'd give this um, speech to these iwi leaders and I'd lay out a challenge. And so I got the department to tell me every iwi affiliation of every child in care that we knew. And I never forget sort of pulling up in the Crown car and, you know, my then private secretary who was with me, I sort of looked at her and she was literally pale and kind of, you know, almost looking like she was going to be sick, you know. And I said to her, God, are you all right? And she goes, oh, this is going to go so badly, you know. And I went, really? You know, and, I did, and, and then it dawned on me the magnitude of what I was about to do. So I stepped up there and I was probably, well, I was, I was Westy Brutal, straight to the point, and literally started listing, I remember, Tainui, you have 554 of your babies in the state care. You know? Ooh. Yeah. Uh, and off I went down the list. And the room went quiet, and then I felt the hostility, and then I saw people moving, and I kept on going. And... Uh, I got to the end of it and it was just, you know, you could hear a pin drop. And um, I stood by what I'd said, you know, I'd written it myself, I'd done the work myself, it was what I wanted to say. I was pretty, pretty brutal. Mm. <laughs> you know, I was like, you know who your nieces and nephews are that are currently being neglected and are most likely to get pregnant early and be ill-equipped to look after their own babies. You know, why aren't we getting ahead of it? You know, why are you waiting for the state to take your babies? And what was their response? Oh, my God. So there's just this silence. And then this Komatawa stands up with he bangs the floor. And he tells me to leave. How dare I come in? Who do I think I am? That I was disrespectful. 
and that I had a lot of lessons to learn and that, um, and that I should leave. And it was one of those really big moments. And I remember standing there and just thinking, and I just looked him in the eye and I said, one baby. Just one. You know, if, if you're uncomfortable, I'm uncomfortable. If I'm being too blunt, if I've broken protocol, so be all of that. But if this makes one baby be treated better and live and, you know, it's fine. I'm a big girl, I'll survive. And at that point, you know, a lot of the kawiya started standing up and supporting me and the room turned. And I'd like to think it was a small part of what I hope now is big change for how we look after Māori babies in this country. Because mm. I don't believe the state should be raising those children. And so, you know, and, and in my naivety, I just sort of thought we should hand them all back. <laughs> and then was kind of told they're not equipped to take them and that we have it. And so we started that whole what's the, what's the pathway, you know, how do we better equip um, Māori? But I found it very frustrating for the next five years, I've got to be honest. Mm. Very frustrating. You know, iwi leaders would come into a minister's office and we'd sit round and, you know, the conversations would be on, oh gosh, I don't know, something that just seemed so insignificant. When you just go, yeah, can we get to the really big stuff? So what would your advice be to those iwi leaders? I think it's moved a lot. And I think that um, I then travelled a lot and really got into what I like to believe is the heart of our communities, you know, those am amazing Māori organisations on the ground. And they just weren't equipped to be able to help their whanau earlier. You know, they didn't have the expertise, they didn't have the funding, they didn't have the state standing next to them. They had it almost making it harder for them and that you can't just have change overnight and that it's a big job, but we need to set kind of targets and we need to set goals and I, I still believe that the strength of change comes from within our communities and that actually for that to happen is government's role to to um, move the power from Wellington and that means moving the money and that means you know setting them up to succeed and that social investment approach, that was a big part of the John Key Bill English leadership and, and government direction. I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, Sir John Key. The relationship that you shared with him, he obviously had a lot of confidence in you. Were you close friends, you and Sir John Key? Not really. I mean, I would call us um, close work colleagues. You know, I didn't, my husband and I don't go and visit him and Broner at home. We would enjoy, you know, the odd white bait fritter and a glass of wine, but, you know, in the company of others as well. Um, I would consider him a close work colleague and someone that I obviously admire and respect a lot. But he's, yeah, I wouldn't, he's not someone I'd invite round in the weekend or go and have a game of golf with, yeah? In 2016, Key announced his retirement from politics and was replaced as national leader and prime minister by Bill English. Bennett was appointed his deputy. Hardest year of my life in many respects, um, apart from, you know, personal tragedies and things like that. I mean, goodness, it was just um, huge and humbling and 
pretty bloody amazing, really. And uh, and so I had this sort of big job. I'd put on a lot of weight. I was quite unhealthy that year. I sort of had um, a whole lot of kind of that personal kind of stuff going on that I had to kind of push to a side because I then had this really big job. And um, yeah, so it was, a, it was a really interesting year. I mean, I loved it and I hated it. When that decision was made, when those conversations were being had about you taking on that role, was that with Bill English and John Key? Who was in the room making those decisions and what was the approach to you? Uh, John called me up that morning and told me he was retiring. And then he said, I believe you should run for deputy um, leader and deputy prime minister. And so that was the start of that thinking. So I had no time to kind of get over the shock of him leaving and almost grieve <laughs> that loss of a you know leader leaving us uh, because, you know, very quickly. And then the caucus decides, you know, who the deputy leader and prime minister will be. And, of course, Simon Bridges went for it as well. But I went and talked to my family and I did talk to Bill, obviously, took a few soundings from other caucus members and decided I'd go for it. Having the backing of the current leader would have been pretty good. Uh, you need a caucus, though. Mm. Uh, and actually, caucus doesn't like being told what to do. And there was, uh, you know, John had been an incredibly strong, dominant, you know, leader for us, uh, rightly so. And in that context, I think caucus were at that point wanting and quite rightly to take back a little bit more of the say of our policy direction and what we were doing and, and how we were doing it. So it needed a different leadership style and they were looking for that and I had to convince them that they would get that through me. Mm. And you said that you ha both hated it and loved it. Why was that? I loved the work and things. I think it was more from a personal perspective. Like it definitely took its toll. You know, it was our ninth year in government. I was lonely, you know, like it's, it's a very weird environment here. You know, you, you're here until, as I said, you know, very late at night. Those last hours are usually by yourself. There's a lot of work to get through. You, you know, it's 24-7, and I was probably quite exhausted, to be fair. And speaking of relationships here at Parliament, your relationship with Winston Peters, why was that always quite strained, it seemed? I just never worked that out. I mean, you know, he was he's so old school that I think he kind of disliked me quite quickly. <laughs> you know, I think I just, quite frankly, I think I just irritated him uh, because I wasn't traditional old school. I, you know, I kind of broke a whole lot of the boundaries that were put up. I dressed differently. You know, now it's nothing, right? Everybody is. But then... You know, I was louder, I was, you know, I didn't breathe through my nose, I'm here, you know, and I made sure you kind of knew I was here and I'm, you know, I wanted to make a difference. And I just think, I honest, the only thing I can work out is that that just irritated him. <laughs> Trying to form that government in 2017, what was that like? Oh, what put us in the room? It's interesting, man. I've got to admit, I came back from one of them and I uh, looked at Bill and Stephen Joyce and I just went, wow, I get the Winston charisma. And they laughed, the, Bill in particular laughed his head off at me because I hadn't seen it before then, I've got to be honest. And uh, and I, I, said, I said, 
I feel it. You know, like the man, he does when, you know, when he wants to, he can literally kind of draw you in and is an incredibly interesting person actually and, and well considered and has impeccable manners, which is, you know, um, somewhat appealing actually. So that was interesting from a personal perspective. I think for the first time I kind of saw, you know, the Winston Peters charisma. And yeah, look, I think we all made a pact then that it would be, um, they would be confidential, you know, conversations. And I think, I don't know, you still got to have a bit of respect and, and for that process, really. Did you, without giving away the details or, or anything, did you think that, that New Zealand First would go with you, with National? In hindsight, no. But at the time, yes. And I, and I often, thinking about that time, I wonder if it's because you had to believe that. Otherwise you wouldn't go in and put your best foot forward and it would be a complete farce. So I did believe that they that they might, but now when I look back at it, I go, well, did I really? Or did I just tell myself that? Because you had to believe it, otherwise. Did you ever think he genuinely was considering going either way? In hindsight, no. But I did find the process respectful in the whole, and um, I can probably see a few points when I, I sort of, if I was being true to myself then, would have thought, yeah, no, he's, he's not going with us. Mm. In October 2017, Peters announced New Zealand First would form a coalition with Labour. Five months later, Bill English resigned and was replaced by Simon Bridges, with Bennett serving again as deputy. What about your leadership duo with Simon Bridges? How was that different to Bill English and what, what was that like? Oh, very different. I hope neither of them take this the wrong way, but I kind of felt like Bill wanted me because um, he wanted a bit of colour and I had different, a, a different set of skills than him, right? Whereas I suppose with Simon needed me, um, he was just a less experienced you know, leader, of course, and, you know, Bill had been in the deputy role and been a leader before and had been around forever. So it was just quite different. And so in that respect, I probably worked a lot closer with Simon. The beehive is a weird one, you know. Bill sat on the ninth floor and I was on the seventh and, you know, you'd sort of run between and go and see each other. Simon and I were, you know, sort of 10 steps away from each other. And so you worked a lot closer in that respect and we had to rebuild something because, you know, in the space of 12 months, we'd lost, you know, John, Bill, Stephen Joyce, Murray McCulley. You know, we'd lost a really big influence within our, our party and our caucus. And in leadership roles, Simon and I needed to step up and into them very quickly. Were you expecting a leadership challenge toward you and Simon Bridges? Look, there'd been always little bits of talk Always. I mean, you know, certainly in the, in the six, 12 months beforehand. But you look, I mean, in hindsight, probably naively, but you just ignored it and got on with the job you could do. Because the polls, they held steady for a very long time. And only during COVID did mm. they really drop. So did it catch you off guard a little bit? Well, I had a plan, you know, I'd been working incredibly hard on that campaign and for over 12 months. As I say, you know, Stephen Joyce stepping away and, you know, like it was just it's kind of massive. And I had to step up and in. I had spent 12 months 
working with agencies and people we were going to partner with. And um, I designed the billboards, I designed the ads, I had set up the right staff in the right places. We had, um, you know, tried some things that were successful and not. And, you know, um, I had a study at home that I literally called the war room where I had it mapped right down to the, you know, the date, the day, the, you know, the week, the day, the, how each, each of it was going to go. I had analysis in that coming out of my ears, you know, and then COVID struck and that, that drum beating against Simon, you know, I, I certainly heard it. Was it warranted? No, no, um, no. And, and But then again, you know, he would say some things and, wow, the public react. I mean, when I say the drum beating, I don't actually mean almost within caucus. I kind of mean, you know, within New Zealand. And I knew it was going to be a challenge that people needed to hear him. Uh, and if their emotions were too high, then I wouldn't be able to cut through that to get um, who I just know is, you know, an incredible man with a vision and a passion and an intelligence for this country, right? So it was always going to be a challenge as to how we cut through that. Are you disappointed the caucus picked up on that and ran with it? Oh, yeah, they needed to grow some and, um, and quite frankly, you know, see a plan. And, and too many of them had had it too easy, to be quite blunt with you. You know, they hadn't gone through what we've just been through in the last six months, which is really tough, right? Uh, and their roles had been quite easy. And at some level, you know, they needed to um, they needed to take a breath and just sort of work their way through it. But there were forces that were bigger. At some level, I just thought, well, Simon and I are just going to be constantly kind of undermined from within and caucus will decide its own destiny. And then Todd Muller takes over Nikki Kay with him. What did you make of their leadership? I didn't, I just stepped away. I 100% stepped away. I mean, I, I was hurt. You know, I felt that I'd given not just 15 years, but you know, sort of 20 years to this party. And I got a phone call at seven o'clock on Sunday morning from Todd Muller after the Friday change. And at that point, he said to me, I'm going to rank you really poorly. I don't see a role for you. And, you know, that was incredibly tough, really. What was your response to him in that phone call? I don't think I did respond at that point. And I think it was later on in the day where I made it very clear that actually I deserved a degree of respect. You know, he was almost, well, he was. He was showing more respect to Simon than he was to me. And I done nothing. <laughs> you know, like, it's not like I did anything, you know, that caused me to lose that role. I was kind of the consequences of the caucus wanting a change from Simon, you know. And so that's when he at that point said, you're probably right, and maybe number 14 and gave me a couple of portfolios. But it didn't matter. I'd already decided I was leaving anyway. I was, I, I was done. And then we obviously saw his undoing, or fall from grace, if you like, what do you put that down to with your experience? What led to that breakdown for Todd Muller and Nikki Kay? I don't know. Leadership? I mean, only they could answer that, really. Um, but it is an incredibly pressured job. You need to be able to make decisions instantly. You need to be able to trust your own instincts. You need a plan. I mean, they'd been planning it for 12 months. I can't believe they didn't come in with a plan. They made it very clear to me within, you know, 48 hours that they weren't interested in the work that I'd done and the prep I'd done for the campaign. It was all just completely thrown out the window. 
I just don't believe that they were equipped to make the fast decisions that needed to be made in a very pressured environment. And so you made the decision for yourself that you would step down and step away from politics altogether yeah. at the election. How did you have that conversation? Was it one that you had with your whānau? Obviously you, you would have sat down with your whānau and, and talked that through with them. I didn't even need to have a conversation with my family. They were more than ready for me to leave. Um, I just then needed to work out how I was going to do it and, you know, and try and do it a bit my own way. And so in June 2020, Bennett announced her retirement from politics, teaming up with comedian Tom Sainsbury to break the news. You did it dancing. You danced <laughs> your way out of there. I've loved this place. I don't want it to sound like it because I've been so incredibly privileged. I've just had some of the biggest roles and the opportunities to make some of the biggest change. I've seen the best of this country and its people. I have had uh, the opportunity to do some pretty remarkable things with the power I had. And for Paula Bennett, your legacy? What do you hope people will I don't remember know. you for? People will make up their own minds on that. And unfortunately, in this country, a lot already have. You know, they, they kind of perceive you a certain way or, you know, let's be honest, Mikey, you know, you're walking across those black and whites and the microphones go in your face and, you know, and you're responding usually to, you know, to whatever the um, kind of crisis or the moment is. Uh, and they kind of just see that person. I just say there is no one person, no one party that has a monopoly on caring. Hmm. We might do it our way, and it might be different than what you would do, but actually, quite genuinely, people want to make a difference. And the intentions are the same. Yeah, intentions are the same, and um, there's none of us perfect. I think that's a nice place to leave it. Then, Marquee Paula Bennett, thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Kia ora. Kia ora. Thank you. You've been listening to Matangi Reya. This podcast was made possible by RNZ and New Zealand On Air. This episode was presented by Mikey Sherman, edited by Debbie Matthews, sound recording by Craig Mullis, audio design by Dean Judd, music by Audio Network. A big thank you to Kay Almers and Tim Burnell at RNZ Commissioning, alongside Kurahotu Māori Shannon Honui Thompson. Our executive producer is Wena Harawera. Matangirea was directed and produced by Annabelle Lee Maver and me, Mihingarangi Forbes, for Aotearoa Media Collective. Ka nui te mihi, kia irirangi te motu. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.